Thank you very much, Gabby, for that. Thank you for your prayers. And we certainly will be praying with you all about these needs that you've made known to us. If I were to ask you, what, was the num what is the number one quality or characteristic of a Christian, what would you say that quality or characteristic would be? Just want you to think about that for a second. I have very little doubt that most of us, maybe all of us, in fact, would probably come up with the, the, the quality or the virtue or the characteristic of love. After all, Jesus said, it is by your love that the world will know that you are my disciple. We know certainly that one of the very main qualities or characteristics of God is certainly love. And when he enters into our life, he releases that gift into your life and mine. Now, what I would like to suggest to you tonight is that the highest form of love is when you forgive someone who has sinned against you. Forgiveness is one of the highest forms of love. And yet, at the same time, it is without a doubt one of the most difficult actions for you and me to take. Not in trivial matters. You know, if you say something that hurt me and then you come to me later and say, Bob, please forgive me, that's easy. But you and I, as we go through life, may experience some devastating, hurtful sins committed against us. And it's in those moments when we are devastated and nearly destroyed when forgiveness can be difficult. I'd like to talk to you about that this afternoon. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we open up the scriptures. This is your word. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It's not something that we can take or leave. It's something that we must submit to and put into practice. But we also want to confess to you that we can never do that without your enabling power at work within us. So speak to us, Lord, about how forgiveness and forgiving others can be one of the highest expressions of love that you've planted deep into our hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servant and your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Would you open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew? And would you go to the 18th chapter? And when you get to that 18th chapter, uh, turn down to verse 21. 
It'll be on the screen, or you can use your app that you have perhaps on your phone uh, or your iPad. And follow along as I'll be reading Matthew 18, verses 21, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay his debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The master's servant, or the servant's master, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We are investigating the subject. Did Jesus really say that? And we've been looking at some of the shocking statements that Jesus makes that, quite frankly, catches us all off guard. And so here we find Jesus saying to us that there is not a limit to our forgiveness. We'll get there but I want you to file that away. This is the word of the Lord that we have read together. Thanks be to God. I want you to look at the context of this particular passage. Uh, I told you several weeks ago, and I know it's not new news to you, that whenever you read the scriptures, it's very important that you pay attention to the context. Context is so very important in helping you to understand what's going on in the passage that you're studying, or in, our, in this case, the, the passage that I'm preaching to you about. And what's interesting to notice is that in verse 15, Jesus gives some very clear and specific 
directions and guidelines for how the church is to handle sin that takes place among one of its members. And he spells out very clear guidelines and directions that seeks to maintain the honor and the respect and the dignity of everyone involved. And just to boil it down, what Jesus says in verses 15 through 20 is, if someone sins against you and wounds you and grieves you and hurts you, you have a Christian responsibility to go to them, take them out for coffee or iced tea and sit down with them and say, you know, when you said that or when you did that or when you failed to do that after you had promised, that that wounded me, that hurt me, and you're to work it out. And if the person who has sinned against you refuses to hear you, then in order to keep harmony and unity within the church, you are to take some spiritual leaders along with you, explaining the situation and saying, this is what happened. I want to seek unity. I want to seek harmony. Help me do that. And then if that doesn't work, um, then the church is to begin its its ministry of prayer and counseling and involvement. That's all spelled out for us in verses 15 through 20. And here's what's interesting. You know that passage that we all quote where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in the midst of them. Do you know that passage is attached to this section of Scripture that I just referenced in verses 15 through 20? In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that when you and I deal with those who have sinned against us, or in those cases when we've sinned against someone, Jesus has promised that he will be present in the reconciling process. And that should be very comforting to us, to know that we have a resource as Christian people whenever we wound and hurt one another and sinned against one another. The resource is Jesus promised that when we sit down to work through this, he will be there in the midst of us helping. Now, out of that, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how often uh, do I really need to forgive someone? Uh, can, I, can I stop after the seventh time? Can I forgive up to seven times and then after that forget it? And then Jesus shocks us by saying, no, I say to you, you must, you must keep on forgiving 70 times seven. Now, it's not the number that Jesus is trying to impress upon Peter. He is trying to express to Peter that one's ability to forgive others should be endless, and you shouldn't even be counting. Now, Peter thought he was doing a very wonderful thing because the rabbis of this particular time and period had a teaching about forgiving others that went something like this. Forgive those who have sinned against you at least three times. And then on the fourth time, you're no longer obligated to do any forgiving. And so Jesus explodes that kind of teaching and says to Peter, no, you, Peter, 
are to be in an attitude and a spirit of forgiveness constantly, continually, and there should be no limit to the grace of forgiveness because after all, there is no limit to how many times God will forgive you, Peter, regardless. It's interesting, biblical scholars agree that when Peter asked that question, he obviously had had a problem with somebody. We're not sure who it was. Was it a member of his family? Or was it another disciple? Was it a fellow disciple? Scholars take the three Gospels, they're called the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They take those three Gospels because they're so similar, hence the word synoptic. And what they do is they try to do a harmony of the teachings there. And what those scholars have done when they do this study, particularly with this passage, they stress that in some contexts, the argument among the disciples as to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven has just taken place. If that's the context, then maybe some pretty harsh things were said among those disciples as they all vied for being the most important in God's kingdom. No, not you, Peter. You're always opening your mouth and inserting foot. Don't think for one moment that you're the most important in the kingdom of heaven. And maybe something like that happened where Peter was getting tired of perhaps forgiving uh, his fellow disciple. We're not sure, but something's going on here. And so Jesus then says, let me tell you a story or give you a parable. And Jesus tells the story of this king who calls in one of his servants. And if you read the text as I've read it out loud to you, he's brought in, which suggests he didn't come in under his own power. He didn't volunteer to come and appear before the king. Uh, but he was brought in, which suggests that somehow this king was made aware that this particular leader in his kingdom, obviously he had a position of leadership, had been squandering some funds, and he brought him in for some accountability. And when he brought him in and opened the books and they began to examine, lo and behold, the king discovers that this man owes him a huge amount of money, 10,000 talents or bags of gold as the NIV uh, reads it, 10,000. Now, to give you some perspective of 10,000 talents, we'll use that as it was originally used here. Um, King Herod, in his domain at this time, annually, only took in 800 talents. This man owes the king 10,000 talents. William Barclay, who can't always be trusted theologically, but is a great historian, says that if these 10,000 talents was converted into coins, it would take 8,000 600 people carrying 60-pound bags 
lined up for five miles to deliver that money to the king. Did you get that? 8,600 people carrying 60 pounds or 60 pound bags of coins, and the line is five miles long. That's how much this guy owed the king. He's caught. There's no getting out of it. So the king says, I'm going to take you and your wife and your children and everything that you own. You're going to, you and your family is going to be placed into slavery. You're, you're going to be sold into slavery. And some of that money will come back to my treasury. And whatever you owe or whatever you own, we're going to sell that. And that money is going to be put into my treasury in order for you to pay back some of this money. And the man falls on his knees, and the text says, and it's a very strong word, he begins to beg the king, please don't. Please, I beg of you, give me time, and I will pay you back. Now, it never dawned on him the fact that he is saying that he will pay the king back, that it's totally impossible. Not a debt like this. I mean, put yourself into this situation, if you would. And let's just say that uh, you owe somebody $10 million with your income and your employment. Do you really believe that in your lifetime that you've got left, you could pay that $10 million back and still make your mortgage payment and buy groceries and keep the electric going and gas in your car, et cetera, et cetera? Of course you couldn't. And neither can this man. But something shocking happens. The king takes pity. And he says to the man, all right, I forgive you. I forgive you. So the man goes out, relieved and released from this enormous debt. It doesn't get very far until he sees a fellow servant in this kingdom that owes him some money. And the text says it's not very much money at all. In fact, the text, let me read it for you, says um, that he owed him a hundred silver coins. Um, people have estimated that the, f the first individual owed the king millions. This guy owes his fellow servant about 20 bucks. You see the difference in the debt. But the servant who has just been forgiven of his enormous unpayable debt grabs his servant by the nap of the neck and says, I want my money and I want it now even though his fellow servant makes the same request that he had just made to the king. But the man says, nothing doing. Other servants in the kingdom saw what was happening. They were irate. And so they went to the king and they said, King, do you remember the guy that owed you millions? Well, he went out and grabbed 
a fellow servant who owes him 20 bucks and demanded full payment. Immediately, no exceptions, no excuses. The king was irate. And the king brought him back in and said to him, now that you have failed to show the generosity that I have shown to you so freely, now you're going to prison. And here's what's interesting. The text says he was put into prison until he could pay it back. The story is he's there for life. He's done because he's not going to be able to pay it back. Now, that's the parable that Jesus tells as Peter, uh, as a response to Peter's question, how often should I forgive a person? And Jesus says numberless times, tells this story. I want to send you home with four important applications or truths that we can carry home with us. It's very obvious as you read this parable that one of the things you and I walk away with is this. You and I have an enormous debt to God. We call that debt sin. That's what we mean when we say we're indebted to God. We, we have sinned so grievously against him. We have offended him. We have rebelled against him. We have cursed him. We placed him on the cross. What you owe to God, it cost God the very life of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, very early in his teaching ministry of the disciples and of you and me, taught us very clearly, in fact, we did it this afternoon, taught us very clearly through the prayer that he gave to his disciples that the confession of sin is a part of our regular kind of praying that we should be doing. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And right in the middle of that Lord's Prayer, we, we are to pray this as often as we pray it. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive my debtors. I actually prefer Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And the reason for that is, for me in today's contemporary world, debts and debtors does carry the connotation of finances. I wish somebody would forgive me of all my debts. But you know and I know as a Christian that that word debt or trespasses, as is sometimes used, is a word that really means sin. So in Luke's version, the Lord's Prayer reads like this, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus goes on, in, especially in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus ends that teaching with his disciples by saying this, if you cannot forgive your brother or sister of their sins, God won't forgive you either. Now, we've got to unpack that a little bit. God won't forgive us if we don't forgive someone else? What, what's going on there? Well, actually, it's this. It's not that he won't. And I hate to use this word anytime I talk about God, but I think you will understand me. 
It's not that God won't forgive us. It's that he can't. Why can't he? Because when you and I refuse to forgive someone else, we're still clinging to sin and living in sin. And until we're ready to let go of that sin, then Jesus can fully and freely and completely forgive us. But not only that, it also is teaching us that to forgive others is a clear indication or sign that we've been forgiven. How do I know that I'm forgiven by God? Why, I'm forgiving of others is what Scripture teaches. But our debt to God is enormous. I think you and I make two mistakes when we begin to think about our sin against God. The first mistake is we minimize it. We don't do that intentionally. Uh, I don't think we go out and say, I think I'm going to minimize my sin today. But we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to shrug it off and say, hey, everybody sins Yes, I'm a sinner, I was born in sin, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm a vessel of sin, of course. Okay, God will forgive. Um, so we minimize. And what God wants us to know is that he does not. Our debt to God is huge. Which leads me to the second truth that I want you to know, and that is this. We do not have the resources to pay the debt that we owe God. Just as this servant in the parable had no means by which he could possibly pay back the king, you and I have no resources to pay back the debt that you and I owe to God. Now, that's the second thing that we have a tendency to mess up when it comes to our debt to God. The first is we minimize it, and the second is we think we can do something about it. Just like the man here. He actually had the audacity to say to the king, for millions of, uh, of indebtedness to the king, be patient with me, master, and I'll pay you back. Sometimes you and I do that with God. Whenever we sense that we've sinned against him, we say, well, I'll say more prayers. Um, I'll read my Bible more faithfully. I'll go to church more regularly. Um, I'll start tithing more, more sincerely. Um, I'll start working at a soup kitchen or helping at I help or some other outreach ministry. We begin to name all these things that we think in our heart is somehow going to be able to get God's impression of us changed so that he will look at us and say, hey, I'm impressed. You're really working on this. Okay, yes, I'll forgive you. No, we bring nothing to God whereby he will look at us and say, Okay, you've done enough. I will forgive you. So we're in trouble. We're in trouble because our debt is unpayable. And we don't have the resources to even begin. Now here's the third thing I 
I want you to know that comes to us from out of this parable. And that is, however, even though your debt is immeasurable and unpayable and you lack resources, God wants you to know this afternoon that he is willing to freely and completely absolve you of that debt. He is ready and willing to forgive. Now, I know that most and probably all of you by now know that and you've experienced that. But what I also want you to know is that our sinning days are not over. I wish they were, and I wish I could stand here and say that you can get to the place in your relationship with Jesus where you don't sin anymore. It's not going to happen until you walk through the pearly gates, which means that as you continue to, to foul up, to fall down, to skin your knees, to sin, God still stands ready to forgive and you need bring nothing in payment. Remember that song, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. There's this stanza that says, In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So what I want you to get out of this, my dear fellow Christian brothers and sisters, is that all of us in this room have grievously, horribly insulted, rebelled, and sinned against our Creator who loves us. We've spurned Him. And we are deserving of being rejected by Him because we have no resources with which to patch our relationship up. But God in his mercy sent his son Jesus into the world to take upon himself all of the rottenness you and I have ever committed and die in our place and say the debt's paid in full. You've experienced that. And I want you to know that from this day forward, as you continue to go back to the king, knowing that your debt accumulates He's there to forgive, to wipe the slate clean. Well, the final thing I would say to you is this. This parable teaches you and me that to be forgiven completely and totally places us in obligation and responsibility to forgive others who sinned against us. And sometimes that's tough. That's why I said at the very beginning that while forgiveness is one of the highest forms of forgiveness, or excuse me, why forgiveness is the highest form of love, it's the most difficult to do. Why? Because sometimes we try to explain all the reasons why we don't need to in this case. And yet Jesus is saying to us, if you've been forgiven, you need to extend forgiveness to others. I've had to do it. You've had to do it. I, I know I'm preaching to the choir in the sense of you've all been there. 
You've all been there in the situation where an individual has sinned against you and they've come to you or you've gone to them and you offered them forgiveness. And it will continue to happen until we get through the pearly gates. Never stop forgiving. Because when you do, then you block your fellowship, your walk with Jesus. And until you clean that up, there will be adverse relationships happening out of your failure to walk in harmony with Jesus. So let me ask you very frankly, Is there somebody who has sinned against you that maybe you need to forgive? It could be a family member. You know, we families do that from time to time. We get together and we step on one another's toes and we say dumb things. Or we do things that wounds and hurts. But just survey. Is the slate clean? I do that periodically in my own prayer life. Father, are there those that I need to forgive that I haven't? And I've had to deal with that. And so I would ask you, and I'd like to close with two stories, true stories, um, about forgiveness. Just hours after his six-year-old daughter was gunned down in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, just hours after that happened, Robbie Parker bravely stood in front of the TV cameras to publicly forgive the gunman that took his daughter and 26 other lives. With a trembling voice and tear-stained face, he offered this statement on forgiveness, I quote, we'd like to offer our deepest condolences to all the families who are directly affected by this shooting. It's a horrific tragedy, and we want everybody to know that our hearts and our prayers go out to them. This includes the family of the shooter. And I can't imagine how hard this experience must be for you, and I want you to know that our family and our love and our support goes out to you as well. He continues, as we move on from what happened here, what happened to so many people, let it not turn into something that defines us, but something that inspires us to be better, to be more compassionate, to be more humble people. Now, friends, I got to tell you something. That can't be done in the flesh. That can't be done in human power. That kind of forgiveness can only be done by an individual in relationship with God knows that they've been forgiven and now God grants to them the grace and the ability to forgive. One final one. Monty Williams, our NBA coach of the year of the Suns, is a deeply Christian man. I know you probably know that. He was brought to faith in Christ by Ingrid, the woman who became his wife. In 2016, 
Ingrid was killed when a driver under the influence of methamphetamines hit her car. At her funeral, Monty said the following words, I quote, In my house, we have a sign that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. Everybody is praying for me and my family, and that's right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well as ours. And we have no ill will toward that family. Now again, that can't be done in the flesh. That's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the shocking point I want to send you home with, my friends. This parable teaches you and me that nothing that another human being can do against us. You ready for this? Hold on to your seat. That nothing another human being can do to us is as great or grave or serious as what you and I have done to God. And since he has forgiven us, he will give us the power and grace to forgive others. I offer this to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Your word is shocking. I think of my own life, of some people who have wounded me and grieved me and hurt me. And I'm grateful, even though it took me a while, I'm grateful for that moment in time when you helped me to release it, to get rid of it, to actually forgive, to move beyond. What a heavy burden was taken off my shoulders. And I know my brothers and sisters here at this spring have experienced that in their own life too. We've all lived long enough where we've really had to struggle with something that somebody did to us that hurt us deeply, wounded us. And yet you led us, taught us, enabled us to forgive. Thank you. Help us to be people of forgiveness. Help us to be a community of reconciliation because we follow and serve a reconciling God. Oh God, thank you for your word. It shakes us, it stirs us, but it blesses us in the end. In Christ's holy name, amen.